I have a lot of friends in the graveyard who didn't get it right. They misjudged the situation. They misjudged the conversation. They misjudged a movement, and they paid with their lives. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you for joining me, parents, teachers, clinicians, everybody who's listening to this show to really get an understanding of why these teens are doing the things they're doing, why they're struggling so hard, why we as parents and families and communities are just really trying to figure out how to support these teens who are just beyond the risky behavior and gone beyond risk. How do we get them back? So to this point, my guest today, look, when I, I've been studying martial arts a long time. And I, when I first met this guy, I met him online through a mutual friend, Robert Raymond Riappel. And I met this guy online and martial arts instincts kicked in and it just said, my gut said, don't mess with this guy. Now we're, we're literally on a Zoom call, so I'm not gonna, but I trust my instincts. Then I heard his backstory and I was like, thank you instincts. But then I heard what he's doing now. And I was like, instincts be damned. I got to mess with this guy. I got to find out what he's doing. I got to get behind this guy's mission, his vision, his passion, his purpose. I got to introduce him to my families. Andre Norman has a story that every single one of you parents, every single one of you listeners, you're terrified your kid is going to end up like Andre. And I'm going to tell you, after talking to this guy, hope that they end up like him. Because this guy's mission is what you got to hear. But it's not just that. It's how he talks to his clients. It's how he talks to the families of these men who are struggling so hard. These families who are so desperate for support and help to understand what's going on. And we're talking, we're talking jails, institutions, and death, right? You've heard me say that many times. Well, I've got, I've got the expert here around the jails. I'm going to let him tell you all the stories. So parents, welcome. Thank you for listening, liking, subscribe, sharing, leaving us a review on Beyond Risk and Back. It does help families find the support they need by getting us up there in those rankings and the reviews. So thank you for taking your time. My guest today is Andre Norman. Andre, thank you so much for being here, sir. I admire you. It's my pleasure to be here. You call me, I show up. That's my policy. <laughs> you said yesterday when we were talking off the air, you said something that, that I will tell you. And I know, I know you like Robert a lot. Robert's been my business partner for three years. You said something yesterday that has changed the game for him. I want you to know that because he brought it up in a business meeting this morning with this company we're both on the board of directors for. He said, you have something on the wall. When you go in to these prisons, when you go to talk to a client, you've got something written up on your wall that tells you what it is you have to accomplish with this person, with this call. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, definitely. Every engagement, every conversation, every job, every stage I take, any conversation, I go in with clear intentions. I need to be clear and ask myself, why am I talking to this person? Why am I on this stage? Why am I in this room? And once I get the why, then I get a clear outcome. So once I have a why I'm here with a clear outcome, then nothing's going to throw me off in the room. 
while I'm in there, something might happen to the left, to the right of me, but it's not going to detract me from why I'm there, from clear on my why and my outcomes. I'm pushing towards a specific outcome. I'm not hoping and praying that somehow somebody sees a greater need in me and provides something that's not um, actually worked for. This sounds like an athlete's mentality. Like this sounds like a professional trainer where did you get it? Where did, where did this come from? Where did this type of... Well, I've never played organized sports in my life. Um, and I grew up in a dysfunctional home. And I learned things at a young age that either you get food or you don't eat. You get shelter or you don't. You sleep in the cold. You you do things. It's like, then I went to prison. And it was the same thing. It's like, get it right or die. If you can't figure something out, then you die. If you can't see something coming, then you die. If you misunderstand or misinterpret a conversation, then you die. Um, that's the worst. And that's kind of like you get raped, you get stabbed, you get beat, you get put in solitary confinement. So these are things that happen when you make mistakes and you're unclear in prison. So in, in my life in the street, you get shot, you get stabbed, you get robbed bad things happen. You get stuffed in a trunk. So if you don't, I come from a world of get it right or die. I don't have the luxury of making a mistake and saying, oh, my dad will cover it. Oh, my mom got me. No. If I don't get it right the first time, I, not, I might not be here the second time. You said yesterday when we were talking that your family traumatized you. Prison gave this trauma a home. I mean, you know, because we're all looking at, at what our, our teens are doing and what these kids are doing and being like, they're going to end up in prison and then it's going to be really bad. I don't think people understand it's been bad. Like you've been there and now you bad's got a home. So talk a little bit about where you came from this, you know, ride or die. I, I love that because it's, you know, ride or die. You're get it right or die. What, what kind of environment? I have a lot of friends in the graveyard. I have a lot of friends in the graveyard who didn't get it right. They misjudged the situation. They misjudged the conversation. They misjudged a movement, and they paid with their lives. Um, whether it was a life sentence in prison or a eternity in the graveyard. I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts. My mom married a high school sweetheart. He was a bank robber. He goes to prison. She meets my dad, who's a local hustler slash drug dealer. And he used to beat mom up, so we grew up in the house, watched mom get beat. And you get used to it. You adjust. In my life, the abnormal became normal. So watching mom get beat, having people um, throw rocks at our bus and call us niggers, coming home to single mom and dad leaving and all the craziness that I can't process well. See, what happened is my dad left. I went through busing. I watched my mom beat. I don't know how to process that at eight years old. So all the things I came up with were wrong. So at eight years old, I had a concept of life. One, I can hit people because my mom's been hit. Two, I better protect myself because nobody's ever come to help me. And three, I can quit anytime. My dad walked out and quit on us. I can quit on anything I want. And that's my mindset, unbeknownst to me, at eight years old. So everything I encounter, if it's too hard, I walk away. If it's too stressful, I hit it. You know what I'm saying? If I think I curl up and I protect myself. And this is my lens that I gauge myself through. Now, my brother, my younger brother had a different mentality. My older brother had a different interpretation. My sisters had a different interpretation. And my mom used to say to us, I got six kids, but all of you had a different mom. Because every year she changed. We I didn't have the same mom that my older sister had. My first son. We child-proofed the house. We did this. We did this. We did everything. 
And then by the we didn't have any more, but by the second, I, I wasted a ton of money and stress <laughs> on stuff we didn't use. So the next kid is not getting a childproof house. The next kid is not getting the bungee, the little carriage with the little spinning thing on top. Then the next kid will get even less. And by, by the fifth kid, I'm just buying the box. We used to buy the toys and the kids playing the box. The fifth kid is just getting the box. Getting the box. He's, I'm not even wasting money on it. So I'm going right to Home Depot and I'm buying some boxes. Here's your Christmas present because that's all you're going to use anyways. <laughs> so each kid in my house had a different mom, even though it was the same lady. And you learn at a young age and then you interpret things. And if nobody's there to help you process those interpretations, they become your rule of law. If you were walking through a park in Boston right now with you at eight years old and you are your father, what could you have said in that environment that would have kept you out of the lifestyle you ended up in? Okay, so we'll do the busing. I went through a busing crisis. Sure. Kids threw rocks at us and called us names. Busing crisis of Boston, you can Google yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I you came can. home to my dad, I said, who are these people? Because I'd never really met white people before. I said, why are they throwing rocks at me? Because nobody's ever thrown rocks at me before. And what are these names? I've never been called nigger, porch monkey, or spare chucker before. What do they mean? And my dad looked at me and he walked away. My dad went through the same thing in Virginia in the 40s. And it happened to him. And my grandfather told him, that's just the way it is, son. Keep it moving. So when it happened to his kids, he was twice traumatized. But he didn't help me process. What he should have said is, son, all white people aren't represented here. That's a small minority. Two, them throwing rocks at you is wrong. It's just wrong. And three, I'm going to help you through this. And then I would have had, okay, I would have had a baseline of how we're going to deal with this. All kids are looking for is how do we cope and how do we deal? If you give them a pathway, then they'll walk it or at least consider it. If you give them no pathway, they will go find their own, which is most likely going to be the mindset of an eight-year-old, a 12-year-old, or somebody who's on substances or stressed out. So their path is going to be way off the beaten path. So my dad should have said to me, hey, these aren't all people. Two, I'm going to protect you. And three, I'm going to walk you through this. This ends. He didn't do any of that. So again, so you got an eight-year-old process. My dad moved out or left, left us. Nobody sat me down and said, this is why dad's leaving. This is where dad's going. And this is how this is working. Dad's just gone. I eternalize it. I blame myself. I try to figure out what I did wrong. Why is he? He doesn't love me. He doesn't want to see me. All the kid concepts, not him. And, I don't understand the concept of husband, wife. I understand mom, dad. So husband, wife didn't get along. Not mom, dad didn't get along. Hmm. So I don't know the differential. Nobody explained to me the difference between dad and husband. And that's what that was. So I had somebody sat me down and said, hey, me and your mom are at a point where we both love you, but I'm going to be living right here. And I'm going to come see you on these days. And we're still going to do these things. And you still have this how you access me. None of that. So I'm left as a nine-year-old to say, dad's just gone. He's been here my whole life. And I could just access, walk down the hall, meet him in the kitchen, catch him on his workbench. But now he's just gone. And I don't know how to find him. So I'm in my mind trying to figure it out. And I can't because I don't have as a nine-year-old the thought process or the tools to figure out where dad physically is or the questions that go to mom and say, mom, where is dad? And since she's in her bag and she's stressed out, the answer is not going to be 32 Harvard Ave. The answer is going to be that motherfucker's not here right. or we'll see him when we see him or whatever. So helping kids process 
It doesn't have to be the best answer, but it has to be some kind of answer. If you leave them with no answer, they'll find their own. Are you traumatized? Of course. At that age, I don't know what trauma is, but when you watch your mother be beat, that's not healthy, it's not normal. When your dad's not there, it's not healthy, it's not normal. When kids throw rocks at you and torment you, it's not healthy, it's not normal. So these are the three baselines that I'm living under. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, to me, the abnormal became normal. So at some point, you stop asking why, and you start adjusting to try to deal with the why. And my coping mechanism wasn't the best. What did you do to cope? Um, I just, I, I retreated to myself. I became really a loner. I stopped talking to people because I used to run and talk to my dad. Now, dad's not here, so I'm not talking to anybody else. And I spent literally almost the rest of the next 20 years of my life waiting for dad to come back. Because in my mind, dad left, he's coming back. And nobody ever said to me, hey, he's not coming back in that capacity, but you can still have access. So when you would come to help me as a sixth grade teacher, no, this is dad's seat. I had a football, a track coach, no, this is dad's seat. And leadership people try to help, no. I refused all the help that came to me because I thought in my little mind that that was dad's seat. Nobody said that, hey, Dre, you can hold a seat for dad and have these people help you. I wish I could tell you I was just a poor black kid from the hood that nobody cared about. I had countless teachers, counsel countless counselors, and people said, Dre's a good kid and he's super intelligent and they tried to help me. I refused the help because in my mind, in my process, Letting them in in that space meant dad couldn't come back. What a phenomenal way to talk about the concept of this hole that cannot be filled. I'm, I never met my, my biological father. When I did finally write and reach out to him because I found his email on classmates.com, he didn't respond. And then a year later, I found out he was dead. And right. that's not something. And I had a great dad growing up. But guess what? Could not you you said it, Andre. He, he you cannot sit in dad's seat. You can't sit in mom's seat. That's the way to say to parents, they gotta do therapy. They got they've gotta pills and skills, whatever you're trying, find that balance. But understand in this child's mind, in this boy's mind, in this girl's mind, that seat's taken, even if it's empty. And it if it stays empty, the the person you never look. And not know it's empty. You always know it's empty to the point is today, it's still empty. It's never going to be filled. He's dead. What I needed was my mom or whoever to say, cool, Andre, that's your dad's chair. We're not getting rid of it. Here's a second chair that yeah. your helper can sit in. And yeah. I just said, cool. Okay. I'm not giving up dad's chair. Fine. Yeah. I'm not giving up mom's chair. Fine. So I got mom and chairs for mom and dad who are disengaged. And all the people who saw me struggling and going, my path was clear. Where I was headed to was super clear. They're like, why won't he let us help him? Because you didn't speak to me in terms that I understood. Things go bad. Things get worse. You're in prison. Did life change for you in prison? We do. We talked about, you know, trauma 
finds a home in prison. Everything that happens because the brain is traumatized now is a necessary survival tactic. Hypervigilance, not sleeping well, you know, the 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 hunched shoulders, right? You know, all of these physical, somatic, therapeutic understandings of trauma, you can't survive without. So not only is it welcome, it's reinforced, and you practice it every day. And that trauma is getting re-traumatized. When did it end? How did it end? Did you end it on your own or did someone finally pull up a chair? I went to prison. I wasn't, in my mind, traumatized. I was raised to be in prison. My punishment as a kid was sent to my room. Hmm. So this is before cell phones and video games. So sure. I used to sit in a room by myself for, for hours and weeks on end. Weekends, weekdays, summers. I was always on punishment. So I was always sitting in a room by myself. All day while everybody else was out playing. So when they sent me to prison, it was like, get in that room. I'm like, it's no big deal. I find the similarities to my past life. So I came in like, okay, I'm still looking for someone to fill that void, even though he's not there. You try to find the secondary. So I find gang leaders. I find people that I semi-respect based on outwardly actions. And I got in line. I joined the gang. And I found a group of people that I could belong to. And then they had the hierarchy. There's like the dad, his uncles, and the cousins, and the brothers. It was like a big family. And we were all on the same page. Traumatized people <laughs> hanging out together. So we shared a similar pain that we were unwanted, undisconnected, and cast aside. So we're like the outcasts. And we're like, okay, we're here. And for six years, I got in trouble every single day. Six years I got in extreme trouble. I spent two and a half years in solitary confinement, locked in a basement, and it didn't bother me because I had already done that. I spent many years fighting and attacking people. It didn't bother me. I grew up seeing that. You know what I'm saying? So I went through all the stages and steps that were just like my childhood. And then it was finally, I got to a place of, I had a goal. And the goal was to be the king of the prison. I was number three gang member in the state. I was about to be number one. And I had a chance to see it for what it was, the king of nowhere. Now, the truth is, there was hundreds of us wanting to be number one. I made it. The other guys died in transition, died in route. They didn't make it to that line. And so they just kept chasing the dragon that they couldn't reach. I got to the end of the line. It was like, okay, I'm here. And then when I got there, I saw for what it was. It was a bunch of nothing. That's when I came up with the concept, like, this is stupid. <laughs> it's like, it was my rock bottom. And I tell people, rock bottom is a state of mind. It's not a place. You decide when your rock bottom is. You can say, you know something? This last episode is my rock bottom. You know something? This last thing is my rock bottom. I decided that day that was my rock bottom. It was my worst point in life. I had been... Two and a half years in the basement. I've been strapped to tables. I've been forced medicated. I've been on my deathbed. I've been those were technically worse scenarios. But when I came to a point of not being able to achieve my dream because I saw it was stupid, for me, I decided this is my rock bottom. So was it a flip or was it began a slow burn process of this? It was a flip. Really? I, I live in my mind. When it doesn't make sense, I shift. If it makes sense, if it makes sense to me. I'm going 100%. When being the top gang leader in the prison system no longer made sense, I didn't want it no more, so I had to come up with a new plan. And my new plan was, first, I wanted to be free. I said, who wants to be in prison? If I can't be a psychopath, why be here? I want to be free. 
And I looked around and all my friends, white, black, Spanish, Asian, young, old, chess players, church guys who got free all came back. So I said, free doesn't work. So many people go with their first options because it's their first option and it technically makes sense. I want to be free. Let me tell you what free is, the parking lot. When you get into the parking lot of a prison, you're free. You've achieved your goal. Now what do you do? I didn't plan for that. I only plan to get to the parking lot. So you go back to your old habits and your old ways. I went past because I saw free didn't work. I said, well, okay, what's beyond free? I said, successful. Successful people don't come here. I'll be successful. And now I won't come back to prison. So I picked the goal of going to Harvard University and becoming successful. But while I was in prison, I saw so many people do drugs, harm themselves, hurt themselves, do things to keep themselves in trouble, scared to go home. The scariest day in prison is the day people go home. Prison has structure. Drug abuse has structure. The underworld has structure. There's no structure in going into a chaotic world that doesn't fit for you. So it's like you said, hey, if you speak French and I put you in a Spanish-speaking home, then I, once you go back to that French-speaking house, you're going to go back to speaking French. Right. So if you lived in trauma and you came to prison, which is an escape, Prison is, I don't have to deal with my parents. I don't have to deal with my problems. I don't have to deal with being a shadow of my brother or sister. I don't have to deal with being the um, not smart kid or, or, the, or the goofy one. I don't have to deal with I can't live up to the expectations thereof. I, can't, I don't have to deal with the things that happen to me that people don't know about. So when I'm in prison, I'm safe because I don't have to deal with my reality that drove me here. Prison is where people end up. It's not where they start. So you can't fix prison because it's just a holding tank. You can't fix crack. Crack's not the problem. Porn's not the problem. Video game's not the problem. Drinking's not the problem. That's where they end up. So we try to take that away. We send them to a treatment center out in Utah someplace, and you keep them there for eight months, and you bring them back. Let me tell you this one thing. Denied access is not treatment. I watched a million guys go to solitary confinement where we're not allowed to smoke. So for six months or eight months, they, these guys, I quit smoking. No, you didn't quit. You just don't have access. And the day they stepped out the hole after eight months of not smoking, boom, they're smoking. Because their mind clicks in that I can't smoke because I can't, not because I don't want to. So when you put somebody in a treatment center out in the middle of Utah in the woods and you deny them access, don't call that treatment. So you find yourself in the parking lot of of the prison, which I understand is the metaphor of it's got lines on the grounds to suggest structure, but people park where they want. I came up with the, I didn't want to go to the parking lot. I wanted to go to Harvard. And I went to all my friends slash gang members and said, Hey, I'm going home, going to Harvard. They looked at me like I was crazy. They said, what? Nigga, you can't go to Harvard. I said, why? They said, man, you're black. You're a high school dropout. You're a gang leader. This, it is. You're violent and all the rest of this stuff. You can't read that well. And they told me all the reasons I couldn't which is what happens to our kids when they get around their friends and you say, I want to leave and go do something different. The crowd pulls you back into the, to the mess because misery loves company is a real statement. And they said, we can't go. We're not ready to go. So please stay here with us. You're my friend. Don't leave me. You're my friend. I need you. You're my friend. I'm going to kill myself if you're not around. So I feel compelled to try to stay and save you and lose myself in the process still. But either way, I never get out. So I had to say, hey, you know something? My friends don't believe. My parents didn't believe. So I had to believe. I went in my room, my cell, and I looked in the mirror. I said, what's inside of me that's stopping this dream from happening? And then I made a list, 
black, uneducated, angry, violent. And I started working on my list. So often we got to get the kids to the point of they wanting it, not us wanting it for them. Right. When they want it, they can do anything. I went from that basement prison cell with 105 years and a top gang leader to working at Harvard, to working at MIT, to working for the UN, to working for London Business School, to working for Genius Network, to working for the White House. I've been around the world three times, not because I'm the smartest kid in the world, not because I had the best advantages. I made up my mind and I believed in my why, not somebody giving me my why. You need to do this because you're embarrassing the family. You need to do this because you're smarter than that. You need to do this. And they start trying to give me my why. And if I don't believe in the why, when hard times come, I fold. It was hard to say, even at 50 years old, and I do believe it was this past year that I finally said this statement to my parents. When I was high, I was happy. And when I was sober, I was suicidal. So you're telling me I should stop using because I got a daughter, because I'm married, because I can't keep a job, because, because, because. All great reasons. But what parents don't understand, and you said it, prison is the escape. Right? The, the sobriety was not my escape. It was my pain. Sobriety was not the thing that was going to rescue me. I was rescued when I was high. The moment I wasn't high, I had to deal with the fact that I was a shitty father, that I didn't have a father of my own, that nobody, my friends, the, the, where I live, can't keep a job, uneducated. Who wants to deal with that type of life? But now you're you're saying you're you're literally in prison. You're saying you're going to go to Harvard. You're looking in a prison mirror and putting a poster on a prison wall and asking yourself, "What is it that I think about me that's keeping me from this dream?" Which obviously is your inherent truth. How do you tell a parent, based on what you just said, the kid themselves has to want it? How do you tell a parent to tell a kid to do this? First off, the thing is, there's a saying that you can't help people who don't want to be helped. Right. Parents have been fed that lie for decades. Oh, your kid doesn't want to help. Let them hit rock bottom. Do the, um, what's it, um, um, tough love. Tough love. And cut them off. Throw them in the street. I'll never throw my kid in the street. I'll never disown my child. I'll never walk away from them. Never. We're going down in flames together. That's first and foremost. You know what I'm saying? And the second thing is not being able to help people who don't want help is a lie. There's just a step before that. It's called getting them ready to want help. That's it. So that's what I specialize in. Getting, I'm not long-term treatment. You know what I'm saying? I'm not the th therapist who's going to sit with you for the six Sundays for the next six years. I'm the guy that gets you to go to treatment. I'm the guy that gets you to not to commit suicide. I'm the guy that helps you find your why. See, I'll help you find your why, and then mommy and daddy can get you in treatment because there's two ways to do treatment. You can do treatment to get out. You can do treatment to stay out. And when you force your kid into treatment, they're doing it to get out. They just want to get out of this treatment program. They don't want nothing in here. They just want to get, get through, get out. But when I went through prison, and there's two million of us in prison, I did programs to stay out because I had a why. These other guys are doing programs to get out because they don't have a why. I've been home for 23 years. Most of my friends last eight, nine, 10 months because they never took the programs seriously. They were doing it because it was forced by a third party and they didn't believe. So again, 
if you force me to do this, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take it serious. I'm not gonna put in the effort that's required. So what I do is I attach to the kid, I connect to the kid, and I help them find their why. Then the most important thing is get out the way. Don't micromanage them. Once they find their why, don't put your limits on them. I wanted to go to Harvard. My father's a high school dropout. He can't manage my goal. It's too big for him. So all he can do is try to, he told me, come on, work in a factory. Let that dream go. That's a great dream, Dre, but it's not attainable. Let me give you one that I believe is attainable for you. Well, damn, if I want to go to Harvard, let me try. What's the worst that's going to happen? And a better community college? But my father tried to shrink my dream into his space and his capacity. My friends try to shrink my dream into their capacity. If your son or daughter wants to become the president of the United States, tell them phenomenally, yes, you need to go where most presidents have gone, Harvard or MIT or Yale, and get a political science degree. Go read these five books, and goddamn, you can be the president. Worst case, you might get a senator. Okay, so this morning I'm um, texting a family member. We're going back and forth, and the subject comes up. Uh, this family member has been in treatment as well, and the subject comes up about an experience he had being extremely lonely coming out of rehab. And I, and I talked about that year and a half. I call, I call it petting the dog at the crack house or alone at the party. That first year and a half of sobriety, when, as you said, nobody believes in your dream but you. And you remind them that they don't have one. So they don't want to be with you anymore. And when you are with them, they keep trying to invite you back. But can you do this alone? Did you do this alone? How did you reform a support group? How did you get your friends on board to at least not ask you to, to participate? How did you spend that first year and a half out of prison when it's just you in the parking lot? A, I didn't ask my friends to get on board. I believed that they weren't going to get on board. Yeah. The worst thing that I did or the dumbest thing that I did was ask 10 other gang members in prison doing forever to come to Harvard with me. That was like the dumbest thing in the world. Me trying to take 12 of us to Harvard was probably impossible. When I was able to let them, you know why? It wasn't their goal, it wasn't their dream, and it wasn't their why. It was yours. It was mine. So I tried to I tried to do what my parents did, give them my why. Interesting, yeah. <laughs> and they couldn't receive it. So the best thing that happened is they laughed at me. And it made me go it alone. So I said, okay, my friends aren't coming, my parents aren't coming. So I went, to, I went to a GED class because I needed my high school diploma. My GED teacher believed in me. Then I went to a counseling session, and my therapist believed in me. Then I went to anger management, and they believed in me. Then I just kept finding people who support that goal. If you say you want to go to college, talk to teachers and professors. Don't talk to, you know saying, plumbers and electricians. It's not their thing. So I started talking to people who... It was in education who saw that space, people with professional degrees. And, I, and they said, hey, that's a great idea, Dre. It's going to be some work, but it's a great idea. People have, Harvard takes people every year. Why not you? I stopped trying to convince people who didn't believe that this is a believable thing. And I just walked it by myself. When I came home, I was home for two weeks, and I had a family member ask me to murder somebody. Yo, Dre, this is what happened. Can you murder him for me? I'm like, yo, I've been home for two weeks. You want me to go back? <laughs> They're like, well, yeah, but this is what you can do. They knew me as the old 17-year-old kid running around with guns. I never murdered anybody, but I shot at people. Can you do this? And can you do that? And I'm like, I became the moving guy. 
When you come home from prison, you're a physical labor guy, manual labor. Can you help us move? Can you help us move? I had, I had a moving company that never got paid. I said, I had to stop being the person that they were projecting. I fell into the role of being the person that they projected instead of the person that I projected. I said, no. I signed up for community college like 60 days out of prison. I came home November 15th, first semester in January, I was in school. And I stopped doing all the stuff people asked me to do, and I started doing the things I wanted to do. I would go to Harvard Square and sit in coffee shops. I would go to Harvard Square and read books in the coop. I'd go to Harvard Square and just sit outside and just chill and eat lunch. I wasn't a student, but I surrounded myself with a place I wanted to be. I was actually from Boston, so I was down the street. And I stopped trying to make people believe in my dream. And I found people who had similar dreams. So it was like rolling with instead of trying to pull people. And it's, it's a thousand percent doable. I stand here today. And I tell you, I'm a Harvard fellow. And I, I got my own email, anorman at HS, hsl.harvard.edu. I had a desk. I had a plaque. And I was there at the law school. I've given numerous um, seminars and trainings at at. Harvard University School of Government, School of Divinity, School of Afro-Am, School of Law. I'm all over the campus. And I've been there. And I, it took me a lot of years to get that done, but I did it. And they're like, yo, Dre, now everybody wants to believe. And that's okay. I don't get mad at them. I know that in their minds, in the back of their minds, they didn't believe on me. They didn't bet on me. So they kind of have like a, this little internal beef with themselves. But I don't concern myself with other people's feelings when it comes to my goals. I'm not going to hurt you, but I'm not going to let you hurt me. Now that you're going back into prisons and talking to these people, now that you are working alongside the prison systems, I mean, you've got an incredible speaking career all over the world. And, and now when you walk back into a prison, who are you talking to? Well, why are you there? What are you doing now with this? When I came home, Prison Parole Office Youth Center. 90 minutes after I got out, I went to a youth center. I started talking to little black boys because that's where I was comfortable. After about four weeks, they asked me to talk to the girls' unit. I said, I don't know nothing about being a girl. They said, Dre, go talk to the girls. So I talked to the girls, and I started helping them. And this is the bad thing about dealing with girls, I have to say. We tell little boys, um, just put down the drugs, put down the guns, put on the jacket, you can, be, you can be good again. We tell little girls, oh, you smoke crack or you're a prostitute forever. Oh, you slept with guys, you're a slut forever. Or you did X and Y, you're no good. Nobody will ever marry you. That's a lie. Why can a little boy get married after doing the exact same thing little girls did? Because our society stigmatizes girls differently than boys. So we have to be mindful that girls need a different level of care and a different level of information. And they need that type of instruction that they can be whole again. The same way we tell boys, but on a different level. So I'm working with boys and girls. So somebody said, hey, Dre, need to work with white kids. I'm like, white kids don't need my help. They own the whole world. Why do I need to work with white kids? Long story short, I went to a white school. They drink at the white school. They do drugs at the white school. They cut their arms at the white school. They got bullies at the white school. I grew up watching Leave it to Beaver, the Partridge family, and the Brady Bunch. Those white kids never had problems. In jail, I watched Melrose plays, 90210. They never watched problems. Laverne and Shirley, the happy days, no problems. This is my my vision of white people. So when I went to a white school and it was just dramatically different, I was like, whoa, these kids got issues. <laughs> so I started working with the kids. And I said, well, at least you got fathers. And he said, nah, the guy that sleeps upstairs, he's not my dad. He's the guy that sleeps upstairs. Right. He doesn't come to my games. 
He doesn't talk to um, my friends. He tolerates my mother. He he kind of like, he has his assistant send me gifts. There's always an excuse why he can't show up. He's forever on his phone. We don't call him dad. We call him the guy that sleeps upstairs. And I was like, whoa. And even on vacation, on his phone, always busy, never engaging. So I realized white kids got it as bad as black kids, just in nicer homes and nicer buildings. So when I walked out of that school, I said, never again will I judge people based on my ignorance. If you call me, I'll show up. So I've been doing that. And I started speaking at prisons because it's where I came from. It was where I was comfortable. It's what I knew best. So I'd go speak at prisons, and that's what I did. Then when I started my corporate speaking career, I'm on stages, $10,000, $20,000, flying around the world in jets, I'm at all these big conferences, and I'm speaking. I read rooms. I read people. That's why I'm alive. I read your intentions. Right. I read your emotions. Right. I'm on the stage talking about sales. I'm on the stage talking about leadership and I'm looking to the audience and I tell part of my story and it wasn't the sales part that caught them. It wasn't the leadership part or the communication part. They're like, yo, this guy has survived something that I haven't figured out yet. And I saw that. So I, I started saying at my speech, you dress up well, but I see you got problems and pain in your life. Let me help you with your problems and pain. Fuck your business. Your kids are home struggling. Some of you, there's 500 people in this room. Somebody before they came to this conference was calling home, honey, is he okay? Is Did he, he flip okay? out? Did he come back? And you're at the conference trying to figure your stuff out while your kid's home, stressed out or still missing. And you don't know, should you go home? Should you not go home? This is like the fifth time this month the kid took off, but you still got to work. And you have that dilemma. And I started seeing all these parents, their parents, aside from business people, with that pain that I recognized so well, I said, hey, I can help your business, but how about we help your kid? Let me help you deal with your kid. And I got way more requests from these corporate slash white people talking about, hey, my kid's doing drugs. My kid's running away. My kid's having sex. I sent my kid to college. I don't know what the hell's going on. My kid's getting bullied. My And it was just, it was an onslaught of that. And they wanted information and answers on how they can actually help their kids, and help themselves cope with dealing with their kids. Did I do something wrong? Is it my fault? Do I need to change something in me? Uh, can I just ship the kid off? Is there a program that can fix it for me? And how do? And I just started going to all my conferences, and I end the conferences, or throughout the conference, I'll say, you dress up well. Some of you have problems at home. Let's not walk out of this room. What you have in front of you is one of the best intervention specialists on the planet. Let me help you help your kid and help your family be better, and then we can help your business. How do you want people to get in touch with you? Are you Instagram, and are you Facebook, and are you on LinkedIn, or how are we going to find you, Andre? Fastest way is an email, but the fastest way to contact me is getting past your own prejudice. Because if you haven't noticed, I'm black, and majority of these people listening to this podcast are going to be white. And I had one situation where I went to a conference, and I was helping people. And, this, and I was helping people go to treatment. This, it was all white folks. Then this one guy came to me and said, hey, my buddy's son is on the street, took off again. He's getting high. Can you call and help him? So I called the dad and said, hey, my name's Andre. I'm in Phoenix. I know you're in California. I can fly out there. I'll find your son and get him in treatment. He, the father didn't want to say you're black. You're from the hood. You got a gang story. I looked at your website. There's nothing in your website that says you understand this culture. I said, your son's in pain. I understand pain. I don't care if I understand your neighborhood and your golf club. Fuck your golf club. Let me help you find your son and get him in treatment. 
And the father was like, well, how does that work? So I'm going to get on a plane. I'm going to fly to L.A. I'm going to run a car. I'm going to go find him. I'm going to put him in treatment. He says, but you don't know him, and you've never been here. And he's going through all this stuff. And he said, well, can we do it next week? I said, man, I live in Atlanta. You're in L.A. I'm in Phoenix. You're a 40-minute flight away. And we kept having a conversation. He kept kicking it to next week. Next week. What he was really saying is, I don't understand you. How does a black ex-gang member help a rich white kid in the suburbs? How does somebody who doesn't understand being rich and white help a rich and white kid? You don't understand his problem. And the father couldn't make it make sense. I didn't tell him it was 15 grand. I need a jet, a room at the Marriott, and this type of running car. And I'm going to bigger this, and I got to bring... I wasn't talking it. I was just talking help. And he was like, "Is he's trying to check boxes. Here's the price. Here's the travel. Here's the follow-through. Here's what I got to do. I was like, listen, all you got to do is tell me go. And nobody's ever said that to him before. So he kept, I got to go do more research. I got to do more research. He couldn't understand how a black ex gangman was going to help a rich white kid in the suburbs. So he kicked it to next week. Finally, I said, okay, cool. Next week it is. I just have to fly back to Atlanta. That was on a Friday. I got to call that Monday that the son, the son OD'd and died. And I say that to say to parents, Sometimes next week, next week never comes and don't judge the help. Just be like, yo, you got this. You know what I'm saying? I do this for real. There's not a, if I can go through the ghettos of Chicago and the back streets of Bronx, New York and up and down Miami Boulevard, I can damn sure come to the suburbs. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If I can go into maximum security penitentiaries, I can go to people's, you know what I'm saying, and pull them out of max, stop riots, I can definitely come to the suburbs. And, but so often, the biggest barrier to me helping somebody's kid is that the parents look at me and say, I don't see it. Versus saying, this is a guy that connects to my son. This is the thing. Me being black is a good thing because when you bring white people to your kid, they're identifying with you. The association is, oh, you're one of my parents' friends. When I show up with the hoodie and the Tims, the kid's like, my dad knows you. My mom, know <laughs> my mom knows you. Are you show up. Instant connectivity because there's no correlation to past trauma and history. And I don't look the part of mom and dad. I look and sound a thousand percent different and I'm authentic in my space. So it gives a kid pause and space to feel safe to talk. And I don't sound like any of the therapists or counselors or uncles that you've pushed at them before. So when I pull up, it's like, you sure they know you? They sent you. And for the most part, your kid's most likely in drugs, in the street, someplace where you don't feel comfortable going that I, I born and raised in. Born and raised in. So the advantage of having somebody that doesn't look like you, sound like you, walk like you, they don't get it. They don't get it at all. But the kid gets it. I'm batting a thousand on putting kids in treatment. I'm batting a thousands on suicide prevention. Yeah, yeah, batting a thousand because when I go, I win. Because I understand where the kid is. And my greatest asset is, A, I'm different. And, B, I listen well. And my goal is really simple. Why am I talking to this kid to get him ready or to get her ready to receive treatment? I'm not trying to fix them. I'm not trying to solve them. I'm not trying to reprogram them. My goal is simple. Get them ready to receive treatment. So many people want to fix it all in one shot. And you can't. Because it's multi-layered and it's multi-years and there's a lot of shit happening in this kid's life. How do I get them ready to receive help? That's my only goal. Email you at support 
at Andre Norman at AndreNorman.com. And you're what? Email to support at AndreNorman.com. And um, we can discuss it. And your website's AndreNorman.com? My website is AndreNorman.com. If you go to my website, there's like a, um, a email, there's a form. It's not really for that. Sure. But it's like to make your mark. You can fill it out and send it, put a note in there. So you can go to the website and fill out the form and just send it and put your note in. Or you can just send an email to support at AndreNorman.com. I have an argument that goes on in my head at a, at a spiritual level. Are you winning it? I hope so, because it's only against me. So <laughs> I can't lose this one. The question that I wrestle with is manifest destiny, you know, versus predetermined. And as someone who believes that everything I have, my marriage, my success, my children's health and well-being has come from believing in this thing that no one else has been willing to say, you can do anything, Aaron. But I always find myself pausing before I say, you can create whatever life you want. And the life you have is one that you've created. Because I also believe that saying, you just need to think positive to a black woman in Darfur is a level of disrespect towards the seat of humanity that is pretty unparalleled because she's living in an environment, in my opinion, in my head, that cannot be altered from her current anything. Let's, let's, let's bring it back. You got a suburban white mom yep. who's living who's wealthy or well-off and their child is doing drugs and in the street. Simply telling their mom, that kid should be grateful for everything that he has sure. isn't going to fix him. So Tell that kid, well... You can send them the best treatment program, they'll be fine. Isn't going to fix them. Buy them a new car. Pay for a new lawyer. That shit don't work. So the question then becomes, Andre, and this is, is in your mind, are you a product of something that has already been decided? Or did you decide this? We are products of what our life courses. And again, you get to decide when you've hit rock bottom. You go to college, you can stay for associates, you can stay to your bachelor's, you can stay to your master's, you can stay to your PhD, you can get two PhDs. You determine when you got enough information to go forward. So some people stay in college for four years, some people drop out. Bill Gates dropped out and took off. He <laughs> said, I got enough information, I can go. He hit his bottom, I'm gone. And some other people need to stay longer. So when kids in our lives, are go we're going through stuff. I was in prison with a 105-year sentence. I could have stayed. Along the way, I said, you know something? I want to change this outcome. I don't like the outcome. And we have the ability, regardless of what is predetermined, to change directions. If you can make a decision to change your life by writing a list on a piece of paper and staring into prison mirror and make it come true, what can't you do? This is why I felt this conversation with Andre was so important. Because I know a lot of families who are on this show listening here are going, I don't know where this is going to go. And I have tried to say from the beginning of this podcast, in the parenting masterclass that I created, all of it, this, your happiness cannot be predicated on your child's decisions and behavior. You are responsible for your happiness. 
And how else will your child learn how to be responsible for theirs if they don't see their parent do it? Show them how. I know it's hard. I know you're stressed. I know there's a lot going on. When he made that list and stared in the mirror and said, I'm going to Harvard, he was in prison with a 105-year sentence. This is one of those shows where we can say, if he can do it, I can do it. If he can do it, my son can do it. My daughter can do it. As always, I want to thank Deepin Productions for doing such a great work on editing this show and making it sound good, making me sound great, this great music. And parents, I want to thank you for being such a good listener. I got I, I got a special guest. Bring him I on. Bring a special guest on. Bring him on. Come on. You got to bend down. He's 6'1", so I'm saying Hello. this. Come here, man. This is <laughs> act like you don't know me. What's this up? is this is my guy. I'm saying he's my one and only, and um, he's doing phenomenal things. And say hi. What's going on? It's great to meet you. Nice to meet you too. What's your name? My name's Aaron. Thanks for being on the show. You're on Beyond Risk and Back. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> so it's possible. Close. Yes. Did you, know, did, did you know? Did you know how to? Okay. Did you know how to give what you never received, or did you have to learn? Hundred percent, hundred percent. You can learn. Sometimes the best lessons you can learn is what not to do. So many people know what to do. Put them in private school. Put them in this and put them in that. Put them in dance. Put them in fencing. But what do you not do? How do you deal with certain situations? My father's in prison. My stepfather's in prison. I was in prison. My brother's in prison. He's on his way to Stanford. So it's breakable. We can actually reshape, again, his father, me, gang member, 105 years in prison. He's upstairs doing pre-calculus. No, no, some kind of extreme calculus stuff. I'm saying that I can't even help him with. We have to get tutors. And he's just a phenomenal kid. We went through the vaping. We went through the getting in, doing stuff here and there. But you have to have those conversations in process. You can't stop life, but you can help redirect the understanding that the person has. So my son has tried vaping. My son has tried other stuff. And he's had moments of um, depression and moments that he didn't want to be around dad. And how do you bridge those conversations? You're not always going to come out the favorite parent, but you want to come out with the best fed kid with information. So um, I say, if you can't, I've done it. So, hey, let's see Andre's kid. He's right there. He's talking all this wonderful. Let me see. My kid's right there. And he's doing phenomenal because not that he's never been through, but we helped him process his way to the other side.